Today on the podcast, talking to Maura Wagle, the author of Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. It's a history of hooking up and courtship in America. This is WSJ Speakeasy, your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Hey, this is Christopher John Farley, a senior editor at the Wall Street Journal. Today our guest is Maura Weigel. She's the author of Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. Maura, thanks for talking to the Wall Street Journal. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, you got to clear some, something up for me. I thought dating was dead. I hear all these you know, <laughs> news anchors and newscasters that keep using jokes about Netflix and chill and how that's what all the kids are doing. But, but you have this book out that's an investigation about what dating's all about. Is dating dead? I don't think dating is dead. And it's, it's a perennial question, in fact. I think one of the most interesting things I discovered in my research about the history of dating is that authorities and experts of the kind you're describing always think dating is dead or dying. Uh, so I think it's dead only in the sense that this is a perennial theme. Now, what I find fascinating is that dating, as you write, is really an invention, and that all societies have courtship, but not necessarily dating. So, so what's the difference, and what exactly did anyone do before dating? Well, it's really interesting because to us, we take for granted, I think, you know, in America in 2016, that it's normal, that it makes sense that the way two people who are interested in being involved would meet is that you would go out into public, meet someone, probably a stranger, maybe someone you went to school with, see how you hit it off, and then decide whether you want to spend more time together, settle down. This is not how people have paired off in most times and places in human history. And so even though, I mean, the real impetus behind the book is to look into this this thing that we take for granted, I think, but that's actually a relatively recent. And if you were to ask someone, you know, in 1800 or in another part of the world, today even, to ask someone about dating, they might think it's a pretty weird idea of how you should meet a mate. And you actually write that the first use of the word date, as we currently understand it, was in 1896, and that early daters, some of them were arrested because the, the cops, their community couldn't quite figure out what was going on. So how did this strange kind of ritual of dating, how did it first arise? Well, it's funny because, you know, this is a thing that surprised me in my research, and I wasn't necessarily expecting but it seems obvious in retrospect, was that the invention of dating has everything to do, A, with young people moving to cities around 1900 in massive numbers, and B, with women entering the workforce outside the home. And, you know, before that happens, it's different among people of different classes and ethnic or racial groups, but basically courtship takes place in private spaces. It's controlled by parents or by, like, a rabbi or a priest or some kind of community leader. It's very new, this idea of women going out into the world, earning some of their own money at least, you know, less than men than is now, but earning money, having more mobility, more freedom, and being able to meet men. And at first, that seemed really shocking because the only context in which a woman would meet a man who wasn't in her family in public before that was in the context of sex work or prostitution. Yeah, it's interesting throughout your book, I mean, the title kind of suggest that, the labor of love, the invention of dating, that there's always been this economic aspect, of course, to matchmaking. And all those phrases like, you know, the meat market and I'm off the market (laughs) and and, um, don't buy the cow if you can get the milk for free, you know, all of that stuff. benefits, investing time, yeah. Yeah. How did dating sort of change the economics of courtship? That's a great question. You know, I think I would say 
it deregulated them in some respects because, of course, actually, I think there's a two-part answer to the question. I think, you know, marriage is also a contract with huge legal and economic implications in basically every time and place. Dating changes that because it becomes not a transaction between families or sort of between individuals mediated by the family, but rather a kind of entertainment. You know, it's two people going out in public to consume something like a meal or a movie or a ride at an amusement park if we're talking back in the day. Um, so it's a different kind of transaction than, than it had been before, and it continually evolves as the economy does. And there's some fascinating history about things that were forgotten or suppressed or don't want to think about anymore, about how much um, romance and dating and lifestyle, the lifestyle of love has really changed just in a few, a few decades because you talk about that whole Linda LeClaire case from yeah. Barnard in the 1960s. Can you tell me a bit about that? Because I found that fascinating. Definitely. In 1968, there was a young woman, she was a student at Barnard named Linda LeClaire, who was living off campus, I think on Riverside Drive, I'd have to double check, with her boyfriend, Peter, who was a student at Columbia. And they agreed, actually, maybe this is a word of caution to people like me, they agreed to be interviewed for a lifestyle piece about the fact that they were living together, which still wasn't sort of widely accepted for their, you know, their class, their kind of demographic of people in the 60s. And they gave an interview to the New York Times and Linda, who was, frankly, a very ordinary-looking woman, just sort of an undergrad, knee-length skirts, cardigan, twin sets, she used a, a pseudonym, but it was very easy, I guess, for Barnard to figure out who she was. And there were calls for her expulsion, huge amounts of hate mail, people calling Barnard Barnyard. Um, William F. Buckley wrote this utterly vitriolic column about her. So people were incredibly shocked that sort of a nice white middle-class girl was admitting to living in sin with her boyfriend um, while still studying at Barnard. And that's kind of, I think, relatively unthinkable to us now, but it wasn't that long ago. Okay, we're going to be right back with Maura Weigel and more about labor of love, the invention of dating. I'm Veronica Dagger. Do you want to know how the rich invest, spend, and protect their money? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcasts and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, WSJ Speakeasy. Your source for entertainment, pop culture, celebrity, and the arts. Hey, this is Chris Farley, a senior editor at The Wall Street Journal. I'm talking to Maura Weigel. She's the author of Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating, a new book that's just out. Okay, another part of this book that really fascinated me is that how dating might have helped create the whole idea of personality. The people used to talk about character, you know, the things that don't change, the character of a person, the character of a woman or a man. And then this whole notion of, of personality came to the front instead. Is that a creation of the dating scene and of Cosmopolitan, or where did this whole idea of personality come from? I think it has a lot to do with dating, and I love that that grabbed you because that part of the history fascinates me too. Basically, the word personality is only used in sort of a negative medical context, like abnormal personality disorder or something like that, uh, until about the 1920s. And it actually comes from a Latin word that means mask. The idea was that it meant something sort of distorted um, or disturbing. And in the 20s, you start to see all this conversation about personality in a different way, meaning something like the way we use it now, I think, something like charisma, something that makes you compelling. There's actually tonight, for my very first launch event, 
uh, I'm doing an event at the Brooklyn Academy of Music where we're screening this classic movie called It, not about the clown, not the Stephen King movie, but about a shop girl in the 1920s. It stars Clara Bow. Um, it's the origin of the phrase it girl. And this idea of it was supposed to be this intangible thing of personality that makes someone likable, appealing, sexy. And what's funny, of course, is that while most of the writers describe it as something that has to be effortless, of course, there's a huge advice industry and makeup industry and fashion industry ready to sell you what you need to start to have it or personality. So it's this paradox of something that you're not supposed to be able to work at. And yet, of course, everyone does. Yeah, it's interesting. Your book is kind of an anecdote, kind of an answer to all the kind of advice books that are out there telling you how you perhaps pursue love. I mean, dating books like The Rules and mm-hmm. Act Like a Lady, Think Like a Man. And instead, you took a different approach to talking about the whole area of dating. How do, how do you feel your book differs from all the advice books that are out there? It's a really interesting question, and I think the honest, the most honest answer is I'm a huge nerd, and it's the advice book I would have wanted, um, or the advice book I would have wanted. You know, I take, I think, a lot of advice out there, and I don't want to pick fights with individuals, although I will if pressed. A lot of them are all about repressing your emotions, repressing what you want. They're all about telling women what they shouldn't do. I mean, I think basically... The Rules, which is the most, I think, still the best-selling advice franchise ever. It's basically a list of anything a woman might want to do in a relationship and says, don't do it. It's like, do you want to call him? Don't do it. You want to call him back? Don't do it. You want to have sex? Don't. If you did, you can't call him. And I think, you know, I think that there's a huge desire to, like, learn the tricks that will help you find love. But I guess I really believe these tricks don't work and that they're about selling advice books rather than making people happy. So I really hoped that at least for a nerd like me, having this broader view about all these beliefs that we take for granted and don't ever question, like that you should play hard to get, like that you should play it cool, like looking into where those come from, I hope would help give readers a certain kind of clarity that would help them feel freer to act on what they desired instead of constantly feeling like whatever they want to do, they should do the opposite, which I think is confusing. I think I don't think it's helpful. In the book also, you talk about the fact that Herbert Marcuse wrote that book, Eros and Civilization, in 1955. And in that book, he kind of theorized that technology would give people the leisure time to spend more time to pursue sex. Mm-hmm. And of course, now recently we've seen how technology has also provided people with the ability to sort of contact more and more people for more sex. I mean, with Grindr and social media. Um, do you think that... Um, uh, how do you think social media has really affected the dating scene? I think it's totally transformed it. And it's an interesting, it's funny because I'm 31. And so I feel like I'm just old enough to remember cyber sex and sort of the Internet when it was this weird space where you didn't really know who people were and you could go on AOL chat. And I feel like that was one version of Internet-enabled dating. And now we've moved into this new era of sort of mobile app, mobile cell phone dating And it's totally changed it. And it's funny that you bring up Marcuse because in a way, all these devices certainly do make it easier to connect in a certain way with a lot of people. On the other hand, of course, these devices are designed, or not devices, the apps, I should say, are designed to keep you playing the app. I mean, I think it's no accident that we talk about playing Tinder. A lot of my friends who use it, one of I've used it, use it like a video game more than a tool to meet people often. So I think there's this tension where... 
mobile apps create sort of an sense of infinite possibility, but if you're not careful, can also become an end in themselves, which I don't think is what most people set out wanting from them. You had an interesting take on uh, the way in which you feel Motown songs might have influenced the way people think about dating, right? Yeah, well, I love it. It's very, again, it's interesting because I talk a lot about the invention of dating, but another idea that had to be invented is the idea of breaking up, of course, because before about the 1940s, 1950s, you didn't really see young people becoming boyfriends and girlfriends in a way that we think of now, sort of having a long-term exclusive relationship with someone you don't expect to marry was not a common practice or something that you see. And this idea of the breakup, I think, is all over these Motown songs. And when you listen to, you know, Diana Ross or the Four Tops, it's funny because they all, I think all Motown songs that I know make it sound like so much fun. I mean, you think of the Jackson 5 and the opening of I Want You Back. It's like, it makes desperately wanting your partner back sound like a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but I think they really capture that change that was taking place in that era, which is, of course, different across different racial groups, different socioeconomic groups. But I think very broadly speaking is, um, you were getting this idea of serial monogamy going steady, coming to the fore of pop culture in the 50s and 60s. Well, it's interesting you should mention the breakup and how that's changed, because there's something you suggest in the book, the fact that social media has kind of changed the breakup, because you can never really completely break up unless you go back through your social media history and delete all the pictures you had with the person and change all the tags and, and delete all the emails. There's this whole history of your relationship that follows you in a way that, it, it, in a way that didn't happen, say, 50, 60 years ago, where all you have to do is sort of dump a bunch of the letters in the fire, and then you can move on. I guess maybe this is why, you know, was it Charlie Theron was ghosting Sean Penn or something? Maybe this is why people are ghosting now. But I, I think that's right. We all have this digital record of the most banal moments of our lives. I mean, frankly, between you and me, I guess it's not between you and me, but I think some of the most painful post-breakup moments I've had aren't even... The love letters, it's like looking back through the old texts that say, you know, oh, do you want Thai or burritos tonight? Oh, let's have Thai. Okay. You know, that whole, like, texture of daily life you have with someone is stored forever unless you make uh, a real effort to delete it. So that's definitely something new. Now, you write in, the book, write in this book that you fell in love two times while <laughs> writing the book. Yeah. Now, what did you mean by that, and how did that affect the actual writing of Labor of Love? Well, I talk about this at the end of my book, and I really didn't want another a trope that you see in a lot of advice books is you get a you know, professor romantic expert saying, I know how to find love, and here's why I have a husband. You know, I am a person with a partner, so that's why you should trust me. And I really didn't want to do that because I find something sort of distasteful about that. And also, it's not that personal a book. So I didn't want to go on and on about having met my husband, but I did happen to meet my husband while I was working on the book. And uh, that was very freeing in a way. But in a, the more directly significant relationship, which I do talk about, is my relationship with my best friend from graduate school, who's a woman named Mal Ahern. She's a brilliant art historian. And uh, we've done some collaborations together. We've written some things together. And this book really grew out of our conversations. And I think it was that like intense, loving female friendship was so important to me because it gave me permission to use sort of the intellectual apparatus we were just developing in grad school to analyze these questions about our hearts and our love lives and to take our happiness seriously and not feel like it's a trivial subject because I think so often the packaging of women's magazines or advice books sort of tell you that 
that these questions about love and sex are trivial. And I think, you know, frankly, what could be more important? We're talking about how we want the world to go on and in what form and how we want to live in it. So well, that relationship, that sort of other falling in love within, into this intense friendship, which I, is also still a big part of my life, was another thing that was utterly crucial for the book. Well, it's funny you could stick up for the importance of love. I mean, Rilke once wrote that for one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult of all our tasks, the work for which all other is simply preparation. For this, I will tell you something. We read that at my wedding. Oh, really? Wedding ceremony. Yeah. So you know the next line. For this reason, young people who are beginners mm-hmm. in everything cannot yet know love. They have to learn it. Yeah. Now, now based on you know, so you read that at your wedding ceremony. You wrote this book about the labor of love, looking at the whole history of dating. Based on that, do you think that younger people today, people in their thirties, in their twenties, even teens, know less about love than perhaps previous generations? Do they have less of a sense of its importance in their lives? You know, I want to believe that they don't. I do worry um, for my, you know, for my generation and for younger generations that because of the way we work today, because of the way our digital devices make us sort of neither ever on or off, sort of always available, because of the rise of this do-what-you-love ideology where we're all supposed to love our work and our careers more than anything, I sometimes do worry that we've sort of let, and particularly a certain kind of feminism has let work replace love, which is not to say that finding fulfilling work is not important. You know, I love my work. I wish for everyone that they find work that they love and are able to do it. But I think that it's a sad alternative if we sort of replace loving humans with loving our jobs. Uh, That said, I do think love constantly changes and evolves. And why I love that Rilke quote is because I think it's really about love as a process. And so much of the self-help lit um, teaches us to view it as a product. It's like this prize you're going to get if you follow all the rules right. And it's, I, you know, I'm only 31, so what do I know? But I talked to my grandfather who passed away recently, but who is 96 a lot for this book. And we talked a lot about love uh, because I happened to be finishing it while he was quite ill. And it's a process, you know, it doesn't, it's, an, it's not a game that ends when you get the prize. So I do, you know, the philosopher Bell Hooks talks about this idea that it's a verb, not a noun. Love is a verb, not a noun, which I love. Um, but I like that real quick quote because of the emphasis on becoming and it being something that we all have to learn and that's changing in time, both historically in the broad sense and then for each of us as individuals. Well, the book is Labor of Love. The Invention of Dating by Maura Weigel. Thanks a lot for coming and talking to the Wall Street Journal. Thank you. Thanks so much. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously.